Good morning, y'all. Give me a second. David ran away with my stand. <laughs> it is good to be here this morning. It's good to be here this morning. Don, thank you for the opportunity to preach and, and, and participate in worship this way this morning. I, I remember noticing a little earlier in the service during the children's moment that like, I think I had, like, I got dizzy for a second. And one was because I was nervous. It was because I think I had like reverse vertigo from seeing Don at eye level instead of like from up there. Um, so it's good to be down here this morning. It's good to be uh, speak uh, and preach and study the word with y'all this morning. And particularly this, this Sunday of all Sundays, Baccalaureate Sunday, as uh, members of our church family prepared to take that next step in life and, and head where God is having them go next and all the things that we're excited about and all the things that are going to be beautiful, all the things that are going to be hard. And all the things that are involved in paying taxes and having to wake up in the morning and all those other exciting things that you get to look forward to as age progresses. But speaking of graduation, I'm going to lead with, and parents of graduates and parents of folks who will have graduates very soon, I know this may not be what you want to hear, but I'm going to lead with the worst part of graduation this morning. Again, that may not be what you're wanting to hear on Baccalaureate Sunday, but not everything about graduation is sunshine and rainbows. I made jokes about taxes earlier and obviously graduation alone particularly in a large school means waking up at some really ugly hours worse than you ever do for class uh, to go stand in line uh, in a really heavy uh, hot robe. Um, I think I still haven't cooled off from either of my graduations. But the worst part truly to me at least and it will come for you it may not be your high school graduation. It may wait till college. It may wait till grad school the first time it shows up. But I, I, it's coming for you. I'm sorry. It's just the nature of reality. The worst part about graduation is it may be days. It may be weeks. It may be months. But you will have a nightmare about having not been in class. And it's finals. And you haven't been going to class. And you're afraid of failing. I'm telling you, like, I thought that was just a me thing because I pushed myself in ways that maybe aren't always just super healthy. And I've talked to so many of my friends, though, in different academic programs and different eras and different ages. And it is just as universal as that weird dream about losing your teeth. Y'all laughing because y'all raise your hand if you had the teeth, lo teeth losing dream. It's a thing. It's not fun. But the, the graduates. The, oh, no, I haven't been going to class. I've been blown off class, and midterms or finals are approaching dreams coming for you. I hope that you navigate it well and get some sleep despite that. And it's interesting that so many of us experience that. I think it says a lot about the ways that we work and overwork, that that infests deep somewhere in there and manifests that way. But I think it's also rooted in how hard it is to find that next step. For a period in your life, being a student, whether a high school student or a college student or a graduate student, has defined so much, not just of how you spend your time, but so much of your self-conceptualization. And I think in addition to, again, we probably don't always have the, the healthiest relationship with work. I think it's also tied to just the nature of who you were and that that phase in your life is over. And there's a part of our brain, I think, that just doesn't know 
quite how to deal with that, at least not for a while. We'll be looking at a transition today where, where folks were thinking that one thing was going to happen and then something entirely beyond that they could imagine happened. They had to be, they had to step through that transition. We'll be in Acts chapter 1 uh, today. If you have a Bible, have one of the few around you. Acts chapter 1 starting with verse 1. And while you flip, uh, I'll set the stage a little bit. Uh, we like to do that in our youth Bible study to make sure that we're not just like grabbing a piece of scripture and, and wandering in in the middle of the story. This is the very beginning of the chapter of the book of Acts, but it's not the beginning of the story. Uh, Luke uh, also wrote Acts. Luke divides it so that if you're familiar with Matthew's gospel and the ending with the Great Commission, Matthew ends his gospel with the Great Commission and Jesus ascending into heaven, whereas Luke saves his for the beginning of the account of what comes next. The account of Jesus has lived, he has lived among us, the miraculous works and the teachings of Jesus have happened, the ministry of Jesus has happened, the death and resurrection has happened, and now what? And it begins with a bit of a cliffhanger for the disciples. It begins with them thinking the thing they had just regained leaves them. The person of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, leaves them and now they have to figure out what the next step is. Starting with verse 1. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, suffering he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Let's, let's really think about where the, these disciples are in this moment. For three-ish years, some of up to three years, they have been, their existence has been defined by following Jesus. Their existence has been defined by their expectation of what that meant. And that got snatched away from them on Good Friday. Everything they thought about the Messiah, everything they thought about what was coming next got upended. And then... On Easter Sunday, Jesus returns to them. But that isn't quite the end of the story there. Something else is coming. Something that they are not fully prepared for, but something they need to be prepared for and something that they will have to step into a mere few weeks later. A lot of times when we read scripture together in, uh, in the youth suite, uh, before we get really into the lesson, I kind of open up and just ask, what, 
what interests you about this passage? What questions do you have? What jumps out to you? And when I read this passage, the thing that jumps out to me the most is that their response to all of this, everything that we just said, everything that has happened to them, their expectation of the Messiah, the death, the resurrection, and then a few following weeks of Jesus still among them and the miracles that Scripture either gives us explicit details about or kind of sums up here and at the end of John's Gospel. After all of that, what interests me the most about this passage, I think, is that their response is, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, there was actually a lot of diversity in the ancient Near East about what God's plan for Israel was, what uh, it meant to follow God in that, uh, if there would be a Messiah, and what that Messiah was supposed to do. For those who believed in some kind of messianic hope, it, the, the, the larger trend that they were part of was expecting a very uh, direct and very tangible way of this manifesting. Namely, the problem that they were experiencing was that Israel was no longer its own independent country. They saw that as a falling away of and a failing of what they had been hoping for Israel and what they believed that they saw as a promise to Israel when they read their scriptures and when they studied their faith and their histories. And so for those who believed in a messianic sort of expectation, the, 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 the payoff for that was that Israel will be, the Messiah is going to restore Israel to its proper place amongst the nations. The throne of David will be restored, the glory, all of that is coming back, and the Messiah is in charge of doing that. That's why you have these uh, small uh, but noteworthy violent messianic events, particularly in the years right before Jesus enters the scene. Because that was the expectation for those who bought into the theology. And this is a question that comes up a lot throughout the Gospels. If you know to look for it, sometimes it's really blatant and other times it's a little more subtle and you kind of know you need to know what to look for and be tuned in to look for it. But it comes up a lot. So what interests me about this is that after everything they've been through, after everything they've experienced, three years of asking that question and Jesus rebuffing them, and then on Good Friday, they see the hope of that dashed upon the rocks of Calvary. Messiahs don't die. But this one did. And to warp their sad little brains a little longer, this one came back. And after all of that, their response to this is to loop all the way right back around to, okay, well, you're back now. So sh surely, that was just a detour. We weren't wrong about our expectation. It was just a detour. And like, you led us up on a mountain. This is a very glorious sort of moment. The view is incredible. This has got to be the moment. You're going to call down the armies of heaven, and Rome is going to run scared. And everything's going to be great. And this has got to be it, right? That's what interests me about this passage. That this is, they, they, they are so locked in to their assumptions of what they think God is up to. And what they think their next steps are. That they race back to the same questions they were asking before Jesus died. So what are we to do with that? What are we to do with that on this Baccalaureate Sunday beyond just 
It's really easy. I, admittedly, it is very easy to read stories of disciples and just go, ha ha, they're dumb. Forgetting that we walk in their shoes. Forgetting that we make the exact same mistakes over and over again. So what can we do to learn from where they've been and learn from the, the, the journey they went on? Because by the end of their lives, these are bold and empowered men and women proclaiming the gospel and living out the kingdom. And what changed? What took them from, I'm terrified and I don't know what questions to ask, to the visions that we see of them in the book, later in the book of Acts and in church tradition about how their lives ended, most of them in martyrdom? How do we get from there to there? It's a bit of a two-step. And I know I lived in Texas for two years, so I feel like that's a good way to make a sermon. Two-step. And as we're figuring out those next steps, that feels fitting, doesn't it? The first step that I see in this, as they move from where they were to what's in front of them, where they're headed, is that we can't cling to our assumptions about what's to come. We can't cling to our assumptions about what's to come. It is, folks, do not hear me saying, hearing, say, hear me saying it is like sinful or failing or anything like that to not know the future and God's plan ahead of time. That's not sinful. That's being human. The problem is not being wrong about the future because unless any of us are clairvoyant, like I, if anybody in this room is, please see me or Pastor Don afterwards because we got some church planning and things to work on. So like the next pandemic, if you could let us know ahead of time, that would be great. But for the, like that is being human. You will have assumptions and guesses and thoughts about the next step. The problem is when you cling to it, when you lock those knuckles and they turn white over what you think is next. That can be clinging to the past. I've always done this. And this will always be what is done. Or it can be, like I said, assuming that you have it all figured out. When again, you are human. And your vision doesn't work across time like that. You, graduates, you will have so many assumptions blown up about what you think is next. And if you follow God in that, that's going to be a beautiful and good and helpful thing. I think about my own life, and I think about my own time leaving high school and leaving college and leaving grad school. And the number of times that I thought I knew what was coming, and I either was, I wa either I wasn't completely right, like I could see through the fog kind of dimly, and the times that I was just flat hilariously wrong. But when I look back, I wouldn't trade it for anything. The times that I was wrong, God has, has continually, God's plan for me and what God is doing in my life and the lives of the people that care about me and who I care about keeps putting up flowers that I could have never dreamed of on my own. I didn't think I was going to go into ministry. I was not planning on this. I did not think I was going to be going into youth ministry. And now, if anything, I can't imagine like a life where I'm not doing that. 
the places I thought I would live, the places I didn't think I would live. Everything has been flipped around so many different ways. There was a point where once I got into seminary, I was like, okay, well, ministry is such a weird, once I uh, uh, told God, okay, I feel called to ministry, I'll do it. Okay, you're right, you're right, right, you're right, I get it, I get it, leave me alone, please. Um, <laughs> the folks who have, who have preserved ministry, I've noticed that everybody's kind of chuckling at some, but those, I see the faces of those who have pursued ministry in their callings, and y'all are chuckling the loudest, because that tells me that you felt that too. Um, that's kind of reassuring, interestingly enough. But once I got there, once I got to seminary, once I got to Baylor, one of my assumptions was that, okay, one MDiv is enough in a relationship. Ministry is a demanding and unique thing, and I need to kind of have like a firewall there between my professional life and whoever I, if God has someone for me, whoever I wind up with. And I've lived under that assumption for a long time. And as many of you know, I am married to a wonderful minister, Reverend Elizabeth Davidson, who has an MDiv and an MSW. Because eventually I figured out that I'm so head over heels into this world and what I feel called to and what I enjoy doing, that someone with an MDiv is probably the only person who can stand me that long. <laughs> and I, if I had clung to that assumption I would have missed out on so much. Like right now, she's down at Galloway teaching her parents' Sunday school class. And then this afternoon, we'll get to talk about my sermon and her Sunday school lesson. And I love that. Don't cling to those assumptions. Have your guesses. Try to figure out where God is leading you. But this isn't how to follow God. And the other step that we can see the disciples moving through this passage and ultimately what happens throughout the book of Acts. Step forward into how God has empowered you. Even if you don't know what's after that step. Step forward into what God has empowered you. Even if you don't know what that next step is. I have always been a really hardcore Lord of the Rings guy. Like, I remember when I was younger, like, it felt like the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter stuff was competing, and I was squarely in the Lord of the Rings camp. And, and I, I stayed that way. And one of the passages that has always stuck with me is when Bilbo tells his, his nephew, Frodo, it's dangerous business going out your front door. You step out into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And the beautiful thing about me to that passage is that that isn't a warning to not step out your front door. If you read it in the context and you look at the way that Bilbo has lived his life, that is an endorsement to walk out your front door. To him, the, the glory of the road is that you don't know where it's headed. You just step out into it. You keep your feet moving and you go. Step out into what God has empowered you to do, even if you don't know what the step after that is. You'll find it. You don't have to have them all lined out. None of these disciples did. Paul was a pretty smart guy, but if I could summon him up and ask him how to do something about, how to organize something about church in American culture and what it's like living in a, a like, assumed Christianity culture, like, I, he was a pretty smart guy, but I feel like I would just melt his brain out through his ears. 
Paul could not have imagined where his faithfulness led in his own life, let alone in the echoes. None of these disciples could have. None of us can either. Step out into that. You don't know where God's going to take you, and that is a good thing. That is a beautiful thing, and as to me is explicitly clear from this passage, God is empowering you to step into it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to, to, to Jesus. These are connected. They cannot be separated, and neither can you. The thing is to me, yeah, a lot of this really applies to graduates and really directly, and I've addressed y'all directly some, but I think this lesson, in case you haven't caught on to it, I think this applies to every single one of us, no matter where we are in life, no matter where we are in our academics, no matter what it is that's going on to us, I think this is just true of the human condition and true of being a follower of Jesus Christ. When you think about Hunter and Sam and Claire and Clark. I think we would all have a chuckle and think it was a bit foolish if upon the completion of their degree, they headed right back to where they were and sat back right in the same classrooms and re-enrolled right in the same classes and did the same thing again as if they hadn't already achieved what they had achieved through their hard work and dedication. That would be foolish to us, right? If it would be foolish to us about academics, why do we do it in our personal lives in the ways that we follow Jesus? You know, we're still in the season of Easter until right, we get to Pentecost. Every time the youth meet, I give them the, the number of days in Easter we're at now. What day are we on Easter now, guys? 36. We're on day 36 of Easter. Thank you. See, look, they're great. We're in day 36 of Easter, so it's very fitting that, that we might look at this, this idea of like going back to the classroom and just sitting right down in the same spot and re-enrolling the same thing and doing the same thing, even though you've achieved what that phase of life was set to achieve. There is something, there's an element of why do you seek the living among the dead in that, isn't there? The next step has come. We might not, you and I, might not have that hard line of separation. Some of us that may have been a little longer ago than others. I'm starting to get really like, like freaked out, afraid of how far back some of my graduation dates are on my diplomas hanging in my office. That that line, that hard separation, that may be it may have been really recent for us, or it may have been a bit longer ago. But we don't, you know, a lot of us don't have that anymore. But even though we don't have that hard line of separation, every single one of us has the opportunity. This afternoon, as we're reflecting on what we heard today, tomorrow morning when you wake up and go to work, every single one of us has the opportunity to say, I'm going to take the next step into what God has empowered me to do, the next thing that God is calling for. We heard the scripture that Amber read. Where you can hear the energy in God through the prophet Isaiah. I am doing a new thing. Don't, can't you perceive it? Can't you see it? There's an imploring invitation there in that passage. Can't you see what God is up to? This new thing that is being brought forth. It may not look what you expect or involve who you expect. 
there are some interesting animal choices in Isaiah 43, and the whole point of that passage is to flip their view over who God is interested in and what God uses to achieve God's means. Again, so it may not look what you expect, it may not involve who you expect, but God out there, wherever out there is for you, God is calling life forth there. So I ask you, graduates, church family, what is God calling forth in your life? In your personal life? The way that you live in your family? The way that you go to work? Maybe something about the way you live life here as a member of Parkway Hills and a member of the global body of Christ. Absolutely shameless plug here at Moody. Maybe God's calling you to help out with the youth ministry. Hint, 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 hint. But spend some time today and thought about that before you go to bed tonight. What is God calling forth in your life? What is that next step? You don't need to know the step after that, but what is that next step you're being invited to take in that new thing that God is doing? May we be a people who get to step in. Amen.